the National Women's Soccer League kicks off March 16th on ION. Out in front to Williams. It's a new Saturday night destination featuring the best players in the world. Takes a shot, she scores! See the full schedule and find where to watch at IONNWSL.com. Thanks, you at home, for joining us this hour. Happy to have you here. Uh, the new U.S. ambassador to Ukraine is going to be our guest here live tonight. This is going to be her first live interview since taking her post and reopening the U.S. embassy in Kiev. Uh, Kiev, of course, a city that, uh, that is that is now newly being targeted with missiles by the Russian military. Heck of a welcome back to the city for the U.S. embassy. Uh, but Ambassador Bridget Brink is going to be joining us for an exclusive interview from Kiev uh, in just a few minutes here. I hope you'll be here with us for that. Uh, back in, in 2010, the U.S. Justice Department arrested and indicted nine people in Michigan and Ohio and Indiana, nine people who were all members of a group that called itself a militia. And the indictment back in 2010 charged that these nine people intended to murder a member of law enforcement, possibly the family of a law enforcement officer as well. And then when lots of other law enforcement officers inevitably would come from all over the country to be there for the big public funeral that would result, this militia decided that they would mount a big attack on the funeral to kill as many law enforcement officers from all across the country as possible. And in that larger attack that they planned on the funeral, they planned to use not just guns, but also IEDs. Uh, this was 2010. There, by then, had been years of extensive coverage in U.S. media about IEDs, about improvised explosive devices being used to devastating effect against U.S. troops in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, and in particular, Iranian-supported militia groups in Iraq were using a sort of enhanced IED against U.S. troops, again, to absolutely devastating effect. It was an enhanced IED that used a kind of shaped projectile that allowed these improvised bombs to penetrate armor. They were called an explosively formed projectile. It was a sort of super IED. And in 2010, these militia guys in, in Michigan and Ohio and Indiana, according to prosecutors, prosecutors said in their indictment in 2010 that these militia guys exchanged information about not just IEDs, but how to build those kinds of IEDs specifically, the kinds of explosively formed projectiles that were being used against U.S. troops by Iranian-backed militias in the Iraq war. They exchanged information about how to build those kinds of IEDs. They amassed the materials they would need to build those kinds of IEDs, all so they could mount what they hoped would be a catastrophic large-scale attack on law enforcement at a high-profile public law enforcement funeral of a law enforcement member they intended to kill. And they hoped the attack on that funeral and the ensuing casualties among U.S. law enforcement would be terrifying and destabilizing enough in the United States that it would basically set off a war here, a war that they intended to win. In addition to the the bombs, the IED part of their plan, uh, they also had a machine gun. They had a, a fully automatic machine gun and lots of other weapons and hundreds of thousands of rounds of ammunition that they had amassed and that they trained with to plan for this attack that they hoped would set it off at a large-scale kind of way in the United States. This group of people was arrested in 2010 
and they were charged in federal court. They were specifically charged with seditious conspiracy. They were all acquitted, all of them. They even got all their guns back after they were acquitted, except for the machine gun, that is, they got all their guns back. That was in 2010, the indictment happened, 2012, they were all acquitted. Prior to that, it was 1988. Seditious conspiracy charges uh, brought against 14 members of a white power group that had amassed enough firepower to hold their, hold their own against a fairly considerable army. Uh, they had multiple machine guns and rocket launchers and anti-tank weapons. They had grenades. They had landmines. And several of the defendants in the 1988 trial were already known to have taken part in murder and in a big counterfeiting operation in which they were making counterfeit U.S. currency, also in armed robberies that were all designed to support and fund their overall plan to use terrorism and violence to so destabilize the United States that ultimately a war, they were hoping a race war, would break out and the U.S. government would be overthrown. Prosecutors presented evidence that this group in 1988 um, had detailed plans that they had shared among themselves to assassinate a federal judge, as well as federal law enforcement officials. They even had plans to poison the water supply in mass in major cities in order to cause mass murder that way. That trial was brought in, in Fort Smith, Arkansas in 1988 against 14 of these white power activists. They were acquitted all of them. And just like the guys in the Michigan case, uh, the white power guys got their guns back too after the trial, at least the ones uh, who weren't already in prison for something else, they, they got their guns back. Sedition is a crime in the United States. Um, seditious conspiracy and sedition are crimes. They're very serious crimes. But they're also crimes that have, have proven to be very, very difficult to get convictions for at trial. And it's an even more, I guess, high stakes thing than just the possibility of failing to get a conviction when you prosecute one of these cases. Because it turns out, we know from recent history, when you try to prosecute people for sedition and the the prosecution fails and the defendants get acquitted, these defendants tend to take that as vindication of what they were doing. In the Fort Smith, Arkansas trial, for example, the one that was in 1988, the defendants walked out of that courtroom absolutely triumphant that they had been acquitted. One of them told the New York Times that day, Zog, Z-O-G, Zog, has suffered a terrible defeat here today. By Zog, he meant the Zionist occupation government, because, of course, it was the Jews who they were really after. One of the key witnesses in that trial later went on to commit mass murder at a Jewish community center in Overland Park, Kansas. Sedition is a crime. Sedition is a serious crime, one with a 20-year prison sentence. Seditious conspiracy is a, a conspiracy to use force to stop the U.S. government from carrying out its laws uh, or, 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 or to overthrow the government. Sedition and seditious conspiracy are crimes for obvious reasons. But in modern American life, the U.S. Justice Department has had a heck of a time actually securing convictions when they charge people with that crime. And all of us who can observe that modern history 
know that. You can just see that in the history of modern sedition prosecutions. There's all of these incredibly dangerous people charged with incredibly terrible things with incredibly damning evidence brought against them who are nevertheless acquitted because the crime is so hard to prove in court. We can all observe that just as citizens, seeing when these high-profile sort of hair-curling prosecutions are brought. We can all see it. But you know who can really see it? Prosecutors who work for the U.S. Department of Justice. They really know acutely how hard it is to get a prosecution in a sedition case. They know it even more acutely than we do because the acquittals in those big, high-profile failed sedition cases, those loom very large in the history of high-stakes, highly-charged, failed prosecutions by the U.S. Department of Justice. Federal prosecutors know this history very well, and they therefore know not to bring sedition charges lightly. And yet, here we are. In January of this year, U.S. Justice Department brought seditious conspiracy charges against 11 members of the Oath Keepers, a right-wing pro-Trump paramilitary group that played a, allegedly played a key role in the violent attack on the U.S. Capitol to try to keep Trump in power on January 6th of last year. Since that sedition indictment in January, three different members of the Oath Keepers have pled guilty and started cooperating with police. In April of this year, uh, there was another guilty plea, another cooperation deal with a member of a different right-wing pro-Trump paramilitary group, uh, the so-called Proud Boys. And now today, five members of the Proud Boys have themselves been hit with seditious conspiracy charges. And I know this may sort of feel like a continuation of that earlier story from January, but I cannot underscore strongly enough how unusual it is and what a big deal it is at the U.S. Justice Department for sedition charges, for seditious conspiracy charges to be charged by the U.S. Justice Department. I mean, in, in, in modern times, sedition charges are rare enough and, and a risky enough prosecution effort that there are literally books written about every modern case in which sedition has been charged by the government. Because it is such a big deal when they do it, it is so rare and it is so high stakes. I mean, if you're under the age of 100 and you were going to go to work as a federal prosecutor for the U.S. Justice Department, it would be a pretty good bet that you would never see this particular charge brought against anyone ever in your entire career. And yet now here we are, 16 people from two different paramilitary groups charged in two different sedition indictments in the space of six months. The Oath Keepers seditious, seditious Conspiracy Indictment brought in January, now the Proud Boys Seditious Conspiracy Indictment brought today both related to the January 6th violent attack on the U.S. Capitol to try to overthrow the U.S. government, to try to prevent President Biden from taking office. The fact that Justice Department prosecutors have brought these cases, knowing the history of how difficult it is to secure a conviction in cases like this, the fact that they have brought these cases against two different groups over the course of six months implies a certain confidence on the part of the Justice Department about what a good case they've got. I really do think that by the Justice Department's own history, prosecutors are sort of hardwired to not use these particular charges unless they really feel like they've got it dead to rights. But now they've done it. They did it in January. They did it again today. And this dramatic decision by the Justice Department comes at what is turning out to be a very dramatic time, right? The congressional investigation into the January 6th attack 
That is separate and apart from anything that the Justice Department is doing. The congressional investigation into the January 6th attack, they have no power to prosecute anyone. The most they can do in terms of potentially putting anybody behind bars is they can refer a case to the Justice Department for them to potentially prosecute, but there's no guarantee the Justice Department would follow their lead on it. The congressional investigation into the January 6th attack is completely separate and apart from whatever the Justice Department is doing on its own steam. That congressional investigation is going to hold its first public televised hearing this week, Thursday night, so the public can see what they have discovered about what happened on January 6th. As first reported in the New York Times tonight and now confirmed by NBC News, one of the live witnesses who is expected to testify at the hearing on Thursday night is a filmmaker, a documentary filmmaker who was embedded with the Proud Boys with this paramilitary group that today was charged with seditious conspiracy. Um, this filmmaker was apparently embedded with them in, in the days and weeks leading up to January 6th, including on the night of January 5th, when he filmed this meeting in a D.C. parking garage between the head of the Proud Boys, the guy in the baseball hat on the right side of your screen there, he's now indicted for seditious conspiracy, uh, and the goofy guy in the big hat whose back is to us here, he's the head of the Oath Keepers. He is also now indicted for seditious conspiracy. These guys run two different pro-Trump right-wing paramilitary groups. They apparently met together in this parking garage, as seen in this footage, the night before the January 6th attacks. The filmmaker who shot this footage is reportedly going to be one of the live witnesses at Thursday night's primetime January 6th investigation hearing. The New York Times also reporting tonight that another witness is expected in that another witness who is expected in that hearing Thursday night is a female U.S. Capitol police officer who was assaulted during the attack on the Capitol January 6th. She's actually believed to be the first police officer who was physically attacked that day. She was reportedly attacked within moments of having some sort of communication, some sort of confrontation with one of the Proud Boys who has now been indicted for seditious conspiracy. So she is expected to testify Thursday night, as is the filmmaker who was with the Proud Boys in the days and weeks leading up to the attack, including the night before the attack when these two, the leaders of these two paramilitary groups apparently met. The January 6th investigation in Congress, again, is proceeding and is about to sort of show its work to the public, but they are proceeding independent of whatever is happening at the Justice Department. In terms of what's happening at the Justice Department, we have a lot of new information about what's happening there in terms of criminal investigations and potential criminal prosecutions. More than 800 defendants who allegedly participated in the attack on the Capitol have been charged already. But in addition to those 800, there are more than 350 other people who are pictured on the FBI's website even today, committed, pictured committing alleged crimes, including assaulting police officers, people who are still wanted. More than 350 people still wanted by the FBI beyond the 800 plus who have already been charged. But we now know that it is not just the grand jury or grand juries who are bringing those indictments of individual participants in the mob attack. There are apparently multiple federal criminal grand juries who are at work here. There's the one that sent a subpoena to Trump White House official Peter Navarro last week, for example. And there's the one that is sending out subpoenas and taking interviews related to the scheme to send fake electors for Trump 
to Washington, so the Electoral College would count Trump as winning in states that he actually lost. The prosecutors who are investigating that part of the scheme, working with a grand jury to investigate that part of the scheme, have reportedly spoken with state officials in Georgia about the effort by Trump and his circle to pressure Georgia state officials to change the election result there to make it look like Trump won when, in fact, he lost. That pressure on Georgia state officials is, of course, already a matter of criminal investigation in the state of Georgia, brought by Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis. That grand jury in that state criminal investigation is now handing out subpoenas and starting to hear from witnesses in their state-level criminal investigation. But on top of that, we now know that federal investigators are looking into the Georgia matter as well and interviewing potential witnesses to that end. So... We are about to get, we the public are about to get a big show your work moment from the January 6th investigation that is being conducted in Congress. They have spoken with over a thousand witnesses. They have reviewed more than 140,000 different documents. We are, re- we are told to expect not only a sort of multimedia presentation of what they have found, but also live witnesses. This first hearing from the January 6th investigation is going to be this Thursday. Our coverage of it this Thursday night here on MSNBC will start at 7 p.m. Eastern. We're expecting the hearing itself to begin at 8 p.m. Eastern. We also got confirmation from the investigation today that their second hearing will happen uh, next week. They will start morning hearings next week. We had been told to expect that there would be a series of uh, of these of these hearings for the January 6th investigation, some in prime time, some in the morning. The prime time one is this Thursday, the morning hearing starting next week. We're going to speak with NBC News presidential historian Michael Beschloss in just a few minutes tonight about the history of this moment, how how rare this sort of thing is, how fraught it is to have this congressional investigation going to the public with its findings, with primetime hearings at the same time that the Justice Department is now putting out these major charges against alleged co-conspirators, the question of the p- president and his personal potential relationship to these seditious conspiracy indictments is, of course, one that looms very large now, uh, given what has been reported in open source reporting about the president's potential connection to both the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and their machinations on January 6th, now that both of those organizations have been hit with sedition charges. So we'll talk with presidential historian Michael Beschloss about that coming up tonight. Uh, But I will tell you just logistically, one thing to note about these hearings in terms of making your plans to watch the primetime hearing this week and to stay up on these hearings as they continue through next week. We, of course, will be covering the January 6th committee hearings live uh, right here on MSNBC. As I mentioned, the first primetime one, our coverage will start at 7 p.m. this Thursday night. I will be helping anchor that coverage, joined by uh, many of my colleagues, including Chris Hayes and Nicole Wallace and Joy Reid and Lawrence and Ari and lots of different folks from MSNBC. It'll be a team effort in covering Uh, the January 6th hearings, starting with our special coverage this Thursday night at 7 p.m. Eastern. But I also want to let you know, uh, on on top of that, not only are we going to be airing the hearings live here on MSNBC as they happen, so you can plan ahead, I I, I want you also to know that all of the hearings are also going to be available on the podcast feed for this show. The hearings themselves and the pre- and post-hearing analysis that we're going to be doing on MSNBC, you can get the audio of that in its entirety and for free on the podcast feed of my show. So if you already subscribe to the Rachel Maddow Show podcast, thank you. Uh, You don't have to do anything else. If you don't already subscribe, just go to whatever podcast provider you use, type my name, Maddow, into the search bar, subscribe to the Rachel Maddow Show. Um, It's all free. You will find that 
at that podcast feed, we will have all of our normal content, the audio of this show, for example. But also, once the hearings start, that is where we are going to post free and in its entirety the audio of all of the January 6th committee hearings, uh, plus the pre-analysis and the post-analysis when those hearings happen. Boy, there's a lot going on right now. We've got a lot still to get to tonight. Our live interview from Kiev with the new U.S. ambassador to Ukraine is coming up right after this. We've got a lot to get to. Stay with us tonight. Good to have you here. The International Rescue Committee works in more than 50 countries, serving people whose lives have been upended by war, conflict, and natural disasters. In places like Gaza, Ukraine, and Lebanon, displaced families are experiencing rough winter weather on top of war, hunger, and displacement. All of this has driven up food prices, destroyed infrastructure, and driven millions from their homes. Donations help the IRC provide families with resources like food, shelter, fuel, medicine, blankets, and cash assistance. Donate today by visiting rescue.org rebuild. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations. And they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. It was less than three weeks ago uh, that the United States reopened our embassy in Kiev, in the capital of Ukraine. Uh, in February, just before Russia invaded Ukraine, our embassy and all its staff moved west, away from Russia, hopefully out of harm's way, to the western Ukrainian city of Lviv. But after Ukrainian forces successfully blocked Russia's attempt to seize Kyiv and Russian forces pulled back from Kyiv, uh, three weeks ago, the U.S. decided to move the embassy back, back to the capital. And the flag was once again hoisted over the U.S. embassy there. Because the U.S. embassy has reopened in Kyiv, uh, it was worrying, presumably, for the U.S. government this weekend when Russia started shooting into Kyiv again. Russia this weekend fired missiles into Kyiv for the first time in over a month. The Kremlin says the missiles were targeting weapons shipments from abroad. Uh, Ukraine says the missiles hit a train repair facility. But regardless, for the U.S. government, a new attack by the Russian Federation— on Ukraine's capital city raises questions about the safety of the U.S. embassy and the diplomats there now that the embassy has moved back to Ukraine's capital. Concerns about the embassy in Kyiv, of course, include concerns for the safety of the brand new U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, who just arrived there a week ago. She is the first Senate-confirmed ambassador to Ukraine since former President Trump ousted the last one in 2019 under circumstances that eventually led to one of the times former President Trump was impeached. 
Russia's initial ambitions when they started the war in Ukraine really seemed to be that they were going to invade and conquer the whole country. Ukrainian resistance and their defense of Kyiv appeared to foil that plan, and it really had seemed like Russia was comprehensively scaling back its ambitions to focus just on eastern Ukraine. With Russian missile strikes on Kyiv yesterday, though, is that a live issue again? We do not know. Uh, but the fighting in the eastern part of Ukraine, or Ukraine right now is no holds barred. It is, by all accounts, incredibly intense. Yesterday, Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, visited the front line of those battles in eastern Ukraine. He made a dangerous trip into a city that's under heavy bombardment and is at risk of being surrounded by Russian forces. He went there in person to support the front line forces in the Ukrainian military. Volodymyr Zelensky handed out medals to Ukrainian soldiers who are fighting Russian forces street by street in bombed out cities where controls seems to be seesawing day by day between Ukrainian and Russian forces. And of course, the stakes of who controls what are high. Russia's taking the areas it's captured in the east and the south of Ukraine. They've been moving to try to make those parts of Ukraine de facto part of Russia. They've given out Russian passports to local Ukrainian residents, as if they are Russian citizens now. They've made the ruble an official currency in those areas, as if that part of Ukraine is now part of Russia and therefore trades in the ruble. They've put up Russian flags and street signs. They've replaced Ukrainian TV channels with Russian state TV broadcasts. They're acting as if those parts of eastern and southern Ukraine are part of Russia already. Today, that new U.S. ambassador to Ukraine met with the Ukrainian defense minister. She told him, quote, we will increase the unprecedented level of U.S. assistance. We will do everything possible to strengthen Ukraine on the battlefield. Joining us now is the new United States ambassador to Ukraine, Bridget Brink. She joins us live from the U.S. Embassy in the Ukrainian capital city of Kyiv. Uh, ambassador Brink, I really thank you for being here tonight. I appreciate you making the time, especially given uh, what time of the night it is right now in Ukraine. Rachel, thanks so much. It's great to be with you. Um, let me ask you first about... The decision to move the embassy back to Kyiv, um, obviously that is something that the Ukrainian government wanted and that some other countries have done. The United States has done this just within the past few weeks. You're just there within the past week. Um, is it a physical danger to yourself and other U.S. personnel to have the embassy there, uh, particularly with, with those missiles that we saw Russia shoot into the Ukrainian capital this weekend? Well, I would just say diplomacy is risky. And uh, we are here because we think it's important. It's in our national strategic interest to um, try to ensure that borders are not changed by force. And to, to do that job, in part, you need people on the ground. So myself and my team, were very aware of the risks that um, are at play. Uh, we very much try to mitigate them. Uh, President Biden, uh, Secretary Blinken, we all have total confidence in, in efforts that they are making to mitigate those risks. And, and we try to do it and I try to do it myself as ambassador. But what I heard on the Hill during my confirmation hearings was from Congress was a lot of interest in getting us back. I personally wanted to get back and the president wanted us to be present. So I'm proud to be here with a group of very patriotic Americans and to represent uh, the U.S. Foreign Service, the diplomatic arm uh, of our government. Uh, we don't fight with uh, weapons. We fight with ideas and words. And my number one job here is to try to help Ukraine defend itself. 
In terms of Ukraine's ability to defend itself, I think that so many Americans um, who have been horrified by the invasion and who are supportive of the people of Ukraine and what they are contending with in, in this war—I um, live in western New England, and uh, in multiple states driving around this part of the country, I see people putting out Ukraine flags in front of their houses, uh, not with other political messages or anything, just support for Ukraine. I think because there is so much support for Ukraine in the United States, I worry that perhaps the U.S. government, that perhaps the U.S. media is telling the American people what they want to hear about Ukraine's likelihood of succeeding in this effort, and that we are more interested in hearing about Ukrainian bravery and Ukrainian success and the Russians, you know, falling short of expectations than we are in hearing news to the contrary. Is that fair to worry about that? And do you have a different view of how things are going in the war um, now these, these 100 days into it? Yeah, that, that's actually a great question. I mean, there is no doubt that due to Ukrainian bravery and ingenuity, uh, the Russians have had to pull back and refocus on the east and the south of the country. It's it's amazing. It's remarkable. It's a David and Goliath story uh, that's in real life. Uh, the president, um, the president is incredibly brave and is leading his people in this resistance to this unprovoked aggression. But also the average person on the ground is resisting um, as well. So I, I think that uh, it's what's happening now in the East is the fighting, as, as your intro said, is very close, very difficult. Ukrainians are losing a lot of soldiers every day. Um, it's why it's so important that we work with partners and allies to continue to provide as much security assistance as they need uh, to prevail, to defend themselves. And um, that's what I'm doing on the ground and working with, of course, Washington and then other allies and partners that are on the ground here in Kyiv. Uh, but yes, this is going, I guess, what I would say to the American people. And I felt this overwhelming support just for our presence, for our, our team that is here, for our people. Uh, when I was back in America, I felt it obviously from the administration, but also from Congress and also, you know, I'm from the Midwest and I felt it from friends and family uh, that I grew up with. So that's great. I would just say this is not going to be easy and it's going to take some time. And I think it's now a very difficult battle in the East. And it's it's more now more important than ever that we continue to offer this support. With the Russian Federation handing out um, Russian passports to Ukrainians who live in the East, with uh, Vladimir Putin um, recognizing the purported independence of parts of eastern uh, and southeastern Ukraine, with uh, the Russian occupying forces uh, telling Ukrainians they need to trade in the ruble and replacing Ukrainian education and media uh, outlets with, with those that are, that are derived from Russia, um, it does seem like— Putin is trying to make the Russian takeover of large parts of Ukraine uh, the de facto um, way of life in, in that part of the country. President Zelensky has talked about one-fifth of Ukrainian territory now being occupied by, by Russian forces. Is it the position of the U.S. government um, that any diplomatic solution, any potential ceasefire, um, has to respect the original integrity of Ukraine's borders? Or is it possible that Ukraine is going to lo lose large, large swaths of its territory um, in, in negotiations to end the war? 
Well, you've got it exactly right. Uh, this is part of the Russian playbook in terms of the giving out passports and incorporating uh, parts of countries into Russia. I mean, this is what has happened in Abkhazia, South Ossetia, Transnistria, uh, among other places in this part of the world. So it's not surprising. Uh, the United States has long recognized Ukraine, Ukraine within its international borders. Uh, and we also have, uh, we consider Crimea as an integral uh, part of Ukraine. So we are letting the Ukrainians decide when or how they will negotiate, as President Zelensky said, and President Biden also affirmed, all, all wars end in some kind of negotiation. But uh, we're, we're, we're supporting Ukraine as it fights right now to defend itself. How important are the new advanced weapons that President Biden has approved sending to Ukraine? I think for those of us who don't come from a military background, we hear about, you know, anti-tank weapons. We hear about um, uh, artillery. We hear about howitzers. Um, we're now hearing about guided rocket systems. Um, as the type of weapons and the amount of weaponry that the United States sends continues to expand, is there something that we civilians should understand in terms of— um, the enhanced capability that we are offering the Ukrainians by giving them these more advanced weapons that are newly arriving now? Well, they are very important, and it really signifies, I think, our support uh, because they are advanced weaponry. Um, they also signify the way in which the battle has changed uh, from what was required in, in Kyiv, in the capital, when there was fighting in, in urban areas. Uh, where now it's fighting in, in the Donbass, which is the area in the east, and it's very flat. And so the fighting is basically artillery. Um, and it's uh, from, from many, from far away, positions are far away from each other. So this, this weaponry is more appropriate for the current fight. We also hope that um, allies and partners uh, will also support Ukraine with this kind of weaponry. And uh, we will continue our very, very close consultations with them in order to adjust the security assistance uh, that we're providing to meet the needs that they have. The United States ambassador to Ukraine is Bridget Brink. Madam Ambassador, um, the whole country obviously is very acutely aware of you and your whole diplomatic staff there, uh, the danger that you saw, that you all are putting yourselves in to do this important work. Uh, good luck to you. Come back anytime. We'd love to have you back on the show. And thank you for what you do. Thank you so much, Rachel. It's really great to see you and be here. All right. More news ahead tonight. Stay with us. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. 
You know what, Glenn? I'm gonna say something. Now, I probably shouldn't. Do you know right now I have something that can bring you into a building that will clean you from covert as you walk through this this dry mix? As you walk through the door, it will kill any covert on your body. When you leave, it will kill the virus as you leave this here product. They don't want to talk about that. They don't want to hear about that. I'm Raphael Warnock, and I approve this message. That's a new campaign ad from Democratic Georgia U.S. Senator Raphael Warnock, uh, showing his Republican Senate opponent pushing a a mist, a magic mist that can clean you. Uh, he says he has this magic mist. He uses the magic mist to turn doorways into 100 percent cures for COVID. That is the kind of ad you can run when your opponent is Herschel Walker. There's a reason Mr. Walker refuses to show up, uh, refused to show up for his primary debate uh, when he was running to become the Republican nominee for Senate in Georgia. I mean, if your candidate accidentally veered into, I have a magic mist cure for COVID right here and no one wants to hear about it, if your guy veered into that territory every time he got behind a microphone, you'd probably try to keep him away from a microphone, too. We will see if he agrees to debate Raphael Warnock now that he is the Republican nominee for Senate in Georgia. Herschel Walker really is the Republican Party's nominee for Senate in Georgia, which does seem kind of crazy. Then again, is that any crazier than the candidate Republicans chose for Senate in Pennsylvania? Uh, After all, that candidate has also been accused of peddling his share of snake oil cures for various real ailments. Even how he ended up being the Republican candidate for Pennsylvania is still a mystery. Uh, The Republican Senate candidate, Mehmet Oz in Pennsylvania, is a man who is from Ohio. He has a home in Florida. He votes in New Jersey. He has no discernible connection to Pennsylvania whatsoever. (laughs) But alongside Herschel Magic Mist Walker as the Republican Senate candidate in Georgia, uh, the no connection to Pennsylvania guy is who Republicans have picked to be their Senate candidate in that state as well. Then again, is Mehmet Oz being the Republican Pennsylvania Senate candidate any crazier than the candidate Republicans chose as their nominee for governor in Pennsylvania? He, after all, is a sword-wielding election denier who has been subpoenaed by the January 6th investigation to talk about, among other things, his role in putting forth a fake slate of Trump electors from Pennsylvania, even though Trump lost Pennsylvania. With each new primary election this year, the Republican Party has made sort of increasingly wild choices uh, for who their nominees are going to be to represent them in November's elections. Well, tomorrow we're going to get more (laughs) because tomorrow there are primary elections in seven more states. And if you are looking to see who might be the next list, uh, the next guy on the list of this this amazing cast of characters Republicans have been nominating this year, Uh, you may want to pay particular attention to Montana. Montana Republican congressional contender Ryan Zinke. If that face is familiar to you, if that name sounds familiar to you, it's probably because you remember him from one of his 18 gazillion different scandals uh, during his time as Trump's interior secretary. And I mean, when I say 18, it wasn't 18 gazillion, but it really was 18 different federal investigations involving Ryan Zinke during his time as a Trump cabinet member. 
like the time he spent $12,000 of taxpayer money so he could fly in an oil executive's private plane, or the time he allegedly spent 139000 taxpayer dollars on a set of fancy new doors for his office? $140,000 worth of doors? Really? Or the time he overruled federal experts to block a Native American casino project right after he met with lobbyists from a rival casino giant? Or the time he allegedly tried to get an executive from the oil company Halliburton to build Mr. Zinke his own microbrewery at a time when Halliburton had business before the Interior Department. Ryan Zinke was—this is tough competition. Ryan Zinke, though, was was perhaps the most scandal-plagued member of the Trump cabinet. If you just look at scandals sort of by volume (laughs) in terms of the number of months he served versus the number of formal federal investigations that had to be opened into his conduct. Ryan Zinke really set some records. I mean, him and Scott Pruitt were kind of neck and neck, but Ryan Zinke was really something. And tomorrow, Republicans are going to decide whether or not they're going to make Ryan Zinke the latest in this year's very long string of quite amazing Republican candidates for office. Again, seven states have their primaries this year. Uh, sorry, seven states have their primaries tomorrow. Uh, watch Montana in particular. If they're bringing Ryan Zinke back Basically, all bets are off. (laughs) Watch this space. At this time on Thursday, we'll be more than a couple of hours into the January 6th investigation's first big public hearing and our coverage of that first hearing. Our special coverage is going to start at 7 p.m. Eastern time on Thursday night. I'm going to be there along with a whole host of my MSNBC colleagues. We, of course, will be showing the full hearing live I've covered um, many, many, many election nights. I've even covered multiple impeachments um, in the past. And I know those nights can be intimidating and and sometimes a little bit crazy. But when I prep for those nights, there's usually some kind of long, deep history we can look to uh, to at least make sure we understand how what we're covering now compares to similar events in our country's past. For this, though, for the January 6th investigation, I have to admit I'm at a bit of a loss. I mean, the assault on the U.S. Capitol, the underlying plot to stop President Biden from taking office, to stop the peaceful transfer of power, this is something where it does feel like history is giving us some fresh material. And now we've got the congressional investigation about to show us their work in terms of what they have discovered. And at the same time, we've got the Justice Department in public-facing actions like new indictments and in subpoenas that have been described to us by their recipients. We've got all sorts of new information about how the Justice Department itself appears to be going at multiple fronts at this topic, multiple different elements of those alleged crimes, including now two different big indictments for seditious conspiracy, which is something that is almost never charged in U.S. history. It feels like fresh material from history. Given that, how do we prep? (laughs) How do we make sure we've got our heads on straight in terms of what this investigation means for our country, how it measures up against the challenges we have faced before? I don't know. I'm calling in a pinch hitter right now to help us answer that question. Joining us now is our friend Michael Beschloss, NBC News presidential historian. Michael, it's great to see you, my friend. Thank you for being here tonight. Great to see you. Great to be together. Um, unprecedented is a word that I've become increasingly allergic to. Uh, and I, right, I've tried, I, mean, I try, 
I try not to use it in a wanton sort of way. That said, I feel like I need advice from you on what sort of historical parallels, historical analogies we should draw on in trying to understand the importance about what we're going to learn this week. Well, you know, take a look at American history. You know, when did we see a coup d'etat by a losing presidential candidate to take power even though he lost the election? Never happened before last year, 17 months ago tonight. Uh, That's what happened with Donald Trump. Did we see an attack on Congress and the Capitol by people trying to overthrow our democracy? It looks like. I haven't seen anything like that. 1861, Lincoln fought the Civil War, but elections remained. 1932, we were in a terrible depression, but people did not turn to Father Coughlin or Huey Long or or dictators. Elections went on during World War II. Here, we're beginning to go off the rails. And the other thing, Rachel, you're talking about those hearings. Can't wait to watch and hear what you have to say about it later on this week. You know, the time of Joseph McCarthy, the demagogue who was making false charges that there were communists all through the American government, there were hearings. Everyone watched. They saw that McCarthy was a fraud. He was marginalized. 1973, Watergate hearings, John Dean mainly, but some others charged that Richard Nixon was in charge of the Watergate cover-up, which he had been denying. Those hearings were watched by everyone. They and the tape showed that he had been lying. He was thrown out of office. But 2022, I hope that a lot of people watch these hearings. I'm not so sure. Also, we're a little bit more numb than we were earlier in American history. And Americans, I think, do not realize, as they did for most of our time, that we've got to fight for democracy every single minute. Plus, Republican leaders in 74 went to Nixon and said, you have to quit. You've gone way beyond the, uh, beyond the line. How antique does that sound tonight? <laughs> well, one of the things that I feel like is not so much a wild card, but at least sort of a rising, sort of looming presence in this whole discussion, including how these hearings are going to be received and how we understand the importance of this moment as Americans, is what's going on at the Justice Department. I mean, we now have two right. very rare seditious conspiracy indictments about two against two paramilitary groups that supported Trump. We've got more than 800 people indicted at the individual level for participating. But we also now have good public-facing evidence that the Justice Department is looking at the plot more than they're just looking at the individual perpetrators of the violence in person that day. The Justice Department potentially having a serious role here in turning this into a criminal matter. Do we have an experience of that interacting with a congressional investigation like this? Uh, Yes, Watergate is a perfect example where uh, there were people in the Justice Department, despite the fact that Nixon was president, who were looking into this, Henry Peterson, other prosecutors that were working in, to some extent in tandem with the Watergate investigators and also with the judge, John Sirica, who was early on to see this conspiracy. So the system works, but the system only works if we demand it. It could be that we have a Republican majority in Congress this fall. And if that happens, you may see Republicans in Congress wanting to cut the money to the Department of Justice to turn the lights out. We may be living in a different dimension. So all I'm saying, Rachel, is to all of our friends watching us, this is a year we may lose our democracy. We may lose all sorts of rights. This is not a moment to sit on the fence. This is not a drill. 
Michael Beschloss, NBC News presidential historian. Michael, thank you for your time tonight. Much appreciated, as always. Thank you, Rachel. Be well. All right. All right. That is going to do it for us tonight. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate.